Last week, we jumped into Ecclesiastes 6. Ecclesiastes is this book written by a guy named Solomon, who's the author of the book, and he takes on this persona as the teacher or the preacher or the philosopher who's sharing about his life and all the things that he's explored. And last week, he shared about kind of really a summary of Ecclesiastes so far of his life without God. He likely believed in God, but he lived, as we talked about, like God doesn't exist. He lived that way. So he pursued all these different things. And so we've been all throughout the last five weeks kind of outlining his escapades in life, the things that he pursued to give his life meaning. He really, I I think, exemplifies the human need that we have for our lives to exist beyond ourselves, to have a purpose and a meaning beyond just our own existence. And so he speaks of wealth, and he speaks of family, and he speaks of money, and long life, and work, and studying, and knowledge as things that he pursued. And in the end, he said they're all the Hebrew word, havel, which is translated in the NIV as meaningless, but really means fleeting, or ephemeral, or futile, or empty. All these things that cannot handle the weight of the ultimate meaning of life. And so his search just continues on over and over and over again. And one of the things that we can know about Solomon is not just that he pursued those things, but also that he probably pursued them more in a greater way than anybody else ever in life. He had been exceedingly successful, exceedingly fruitful, exceedingly wealthy, had pursued exceeding pleasure and wealth and knowledge and he said, in the end, it was all empty. He was, a king of, he was the king of Israel for 40 years. And he led the nation of Israel through a great time of success, of expansion, and of relatively great peace. He built the temple that became known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he is described by some economics people that say he had a net worth of $3 trillion dollars. That he, in, in 2023 terms, $3 trillion in present day terms. So he was the wealthiest man in the history of the world. And not only did he have exceeding wealth, he had 700 wives. That is not an exaggeration. It literally says that in the Bible, 700 wives. Some of them were from Israel, his homeland. Some of them were foreign wives of women from other nations that he married to kind of develop political favor in his lifetime. Not only did he have 700 wives, but he had 300 concubines that he had some sort of relationship with. And so what's interesting to me about Solomon's pursuits and many of his quote-unquote successes in successes in life is that they go against God's instructions. They go against it. Here was Solomon, a knowledgeable guy who studied, who was the king, who knew God's law and his rules and regulations for God's people. And he very specifically went against them. Just a few examples in God's word, in the law for Israel at this time, there were laws against marrying foreign women. There were laws against developing or amassing the possessions through foreign nations for yourself. And there was laws against worshiping other gods. Rules and regulations that he very obviously, over his 40 years as king, little by little, he embraced 
all of those things. He married women from foreign nations to gain favor with other nations. He built his wealth largely through acquiring it from other foreign nations. And then on top of that, at the, toward the end of his life, just to keep his wives happy because he had so many, he, he built shrines to other foreign gods just to be able to kind of appease them. And so I think we could, we could recognize that he defied the Lord. And many of his pursuits, as he outlines in Ecclesiastes, went against God's instruction. And yet at the same time, he's a part of what's known in the Bible as wisdom literature. And so I would put Solomon this way. Solomon is the wisest fool who ever lived. He was a fool. He went about his life in large part, most of his adult years, away from God's design. And what he had to show for it at the end of his life, all throughout Ecclesiastes, what does he say? That it was empty, that it was Havel, that it wasn't anything that he could grab a hold of, and he's, his life was empty. And I think it's tempting of, in our lives to think, well, we're, we're a lot different than Solomon. In times, they're a lot different now. And start to kind of explain away, well, our temptations are different. We don't have the same as Solomon. But I think if we were to really examine our society and even our own hearts, things really haven't changed that much at all. That Ecclesiastes is as relevant as it was when he wrote it as it is to us now. And I saw something on Twitter recently that reminded me of this. Something that was so bizarre, I thought, was this a quote from Ecclesiastes? Kevin O'Leary is one of the sharks on the, the TV show Shark Tank, one of my favorite shows. I love to watch them kind of negotiate between entrepreneurs. And Kevin O'Leary is known on the show as Mr. Wonderful, which is a very sarcastic term because he's a jerk to everybody. And nobody wants his money, and they kind of resign themselves to working with Kevin O'Leary if all the other sharks say they don't, they're not interested. And he said this on Twitter recently, which just blew me away. He said, you may lose your wife, you may lose your dog, your mother may hate you. None of those things matter. What matters is what you achieve, is that you exceed, what matters is that you achieve success and become free. Then you can do whatever you like. (laughs) I I wanted there to be another sentence. This too is meaningless. A chasing (laughs) after the wind. Ecclesiastes 13.1. This so, so bizarre, and yet if knowing his persona on the television show and seeing him on some Fox Business interviews that he's done, that is Mr. Wonderful. That is the way that he thinks about life and is very much in line with the pursuits of Solomon. And it was all empty and meaningless. And so today we make our way to chapter 7 and allowing some of Solomon's instructions to continue to teach us. And all throughout these first six chapters, he's kind of talked about his pursuits. And now it's almost like he takes a step back and he says, well, now I want to share a few things, a few, a few words of advice. And earlier on in his life, he wrote a book called Proverbs which is filled with all sorts of little short little nuggets of wisdom. And Ecclesiastes 7 takes on that kind of Proverbs-like feel where he's going to share with us bits of practical wisdom that he wants to impart from us. And he wants to really, I would say, learn from his mistakes. And so if you have your Bible, you could turn to Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes is just shortly after the books of Psalms. And Proverbs, Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. Solomon continues. He says, 
A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. This is the word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes is a book in God's word, in scripture, that is considered to be a part of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is typically known as five books of the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And as we've looked at Ecclesiastes these past few weeks, I think we've begin to understand why it is sometimes difficult to understand Ecclesiastes as a book of wisdom literature. But really, the kind of core elements of Ecclesiastes are the same as these other books. They're focused on understanding or gaining wisdom, and they use a lot of poetry in order to explore this topic. So on the surface, Ecclesiastes might seem highly cynical and negative, but really, as we've kind of dug into it, I think we've seen some of the depth of what Solomon has to say. And I think our passage today especially embodies that. So what is wisdom? The Bible never defines it. In Proverbs, over and over, Solomon says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But he doesn't say what wisdom is. He just says that it's the beginning of wisdom. And so we get this picture that we, we know where to look for wisdom. We submit ourselves to the Lord in awe and in wonder of him. And then we can start to walk in the way of wisdom. But what is wisdom? Well, I was reading one book on Ecclesiastes that defined wisdom. And I kind of tweaked it just slightly. But here is the basic definition. The discerning and applying of truth for the glory of God and the good of others. And applying, you could probably also in that place put the living Wisdom is not just something that we take in. It's also something that we live out. It's not just something that we know. It's something that we live. So the discerning and applying or the living of truth for the glory of God and for the good of others. It's not just for the Lord and it's not just for others here on earth. It's both all together. And so today, Solomon, as we just read, is going to get very practical in helping us 
discern and apply the truth for God's glory and for others. But much of his teaching is a little bit disjointed. He seems to talk about this and then this and then this and then over there and that random comment that made no sense and all sorts of things. I liken it to you're sitting down with your grandpa and grandpa is at the end of his life and he knows that he doesn't have much longer and he wants to share some advice with you, things that he's learned over time that now he wants to pass along with you. And so you're sitting down maybe over coffee with grandpa and grandpa's got stories and he's got advice and then grandpa goes to the bathroom and then he comes back and he talks about something else and grandpa says some crazy stuff, some stuff that makes no sense. That's a little bit like Solomon at the end of his life here in Ecclesiastes 7 and it's worth exploring so that it can make more sense for us. And so let's just look at a few of these, a few of these short little wisdom statements where he is outlining wisdom over foolishness. And he has that kind of compare and contrast between two things, one which is wise, one which is foolish. And he begins by highlighting the inside over outside. And he says it right at the very beginning, the first half of verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. In the original language, that statement is even more poetic than it reads to us because the word for name and the word for perfume are just a few letters different. And then in the Hebrew, the, uh, the root word for name is also built upon it to give us the name for perfume. And so in the Hebrew, it's even more poetic than we read it here, even though it seems to make some sense. The idea that he's giving is better a good name than great perfume, better the inside than the outside. And we live in an image-obsessed culture, an outside-obsessed culture. I heard one sociologist say that he believed that a king 100 years ago, all the pictures taken of that king 100 years ago, didn't even match the number of pictures taken of a three-year-old in their lifetime. A whole lifetime of a king 100 years ago today, a three-year-old. All those amounts of pictures. And why do we do this? Well, I think we, deep down in our human heart, we want to be noticed. And so we take pictures of things to somehow help us remember them and to reflect on. These are important people, things, memories that we want to reflect on and we want to be noticed. But really, who cares how good you look how attractive you are, how nice you smell, how beautiful you might be if your name is synonymous with something that you do not like. That's what Solomon is saying, is that the outside pursuit of looking good is not more important than a name that carries weight and value. You can spend all your time cultivating the outside while missing the importance of the inside. And this was one of the greatest criticisms that Jesus brought to the religious leaders of his day. In fact, he went to a meal one time with some of these religious leaders, and they had this whole ritual around how they washed and cleaned themselves before a meal. That was not anything outlined in God's word. It was just a, a tradition that they had. And Jesus shows up to the meal, and maybe he just washed his hands, but he didn't do enough to fully clean himself like all the other religious leaders. 
And so they're sitting down at the meal, and Jesus knows that they're like, what is he doing? He's not doing what he's supposed to do. And he says to them, woe to you because you clean the outside of the bowl, but inside you are full of wickedness and greed. What Jesus was highlighting for those religious leaders is they were were doing everything right on the outside, but inside they were rotting away and not reflecting who God was through the way they lived. We could say that a person is really given three names. You're given a name at birth. You have a name that some people like to call you. And then you have a name that your life builds of what does your name actually mean. And that's what Proverbs 10 highlights. It says that the name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. That your name somehow carries with it a weight of how you live and the life that actually you carry through. This is true of Mary, of Bethany. She comes to Jesus, and she anoints his feet with precious perfume. And Jesus says to everybody around him, Mary will be known throughout the world because of what she's done. And it's true. She is. She's written about in God's word, and we can all read the story of her. But then compare Mary with Judas of Iscariot. Does anyone ever name their child Judas? anymore? No. Judas is a name that's known for a very specific act of going against our Savior. Judas is a name taken from the root word connected to Judah, which means to be praised. And Judas used that and moved against the Lord to betray him. He defied the name that was given to him. And no one now values the name Judas because of what it might mean to us. And so we understand this, that the inside matters more than the outside, even though we don't often live that way. And then the second half of verse 1 highlights the next one, which is completely different than the first, when Solomon says, the day of death better than the day of birth. Death over life. And this is the first one where grandpa's talking and you're kind of like, What? What are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. Everybody values life over death. But he's not celebrating death. He's drawing a comparison. And he's saying that death is more helpful. Why? Because it causes self-examination. It provides us an opportunity to change. It helps us to recognize that there's time to confess and to forgive. The day of death has more to teach us and more to give us than the day of birth. Its lessons are more finite, factual, and to the point. The day of birth is all about hopeful expectation of all that might come in the years to come in the life of that child. The day of death is finite. It tells us that something is about to end. And there's a great psalm that highlights this more poetically even than Solomon does. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And like Psalm 90, when Solomon says this in verse 1, he has something positive in mind. He's highlighting the blessing of death and what it has to say to us about life. And I can remember back in, in 2010 at a church Rose and I were at up in Portland, there was a guy named Jim Steinfeld who was diagnosed with brain cancer And he was given three to six months to live. And he ended up living for two years. But from the moment of his diagnosis, 
Jim just tried to meet with as many people as he possibly could to talk about the reality of his impending death and what it meant for him and then for us about life. And I got invited to spend some time with Jim and some other younger guys of the church. And Jim just wanted to have a conversation with us to share about the reality of his death and that the same fate was coming to all of us. He just knew that his date was probably coming sooner than ours. But the reality was going to come to all of us. And he had us all write down our eulogy. He just wanted us to write out a couple paragraphs of how would you summarize your life? And it was very much the day of death is better than the day of birth. Because when you write out your eulogy, you realize, oh, what am I doing to actually facilitate some of that that I've just written down about what my life is, how am I living that out today? And so the day of death can be better than the day of birth because it allows us to pursue the life that we do have before us with a renewed focus of knowing that the end is near and I can live for the things that I want my life to be about right now. And that's what Jim was all focused on. He's, for me, a very vivid example of what Solomon has to say, to learn how to cherish and value the days, the moments that we're given, because we never know when it will end. And then he kind of builds on this idea of death over life by then highlighting mourning over feasting and pleasure. He says that in verses two through four, the house of mourning is better than the house of pleasure. And this isn't, when we think of Times of mourning and adversity and difficulty, we often think that this is a sign of God's judgment or God's disfavor on our lives. But actually, what Solomon is saying is that God can use these times of mourning, these difficult things, this adversity we face to allow for blessing to come through. And the word that he uses for pleasure is the same word that's used for feasts, and festivals that the Israelites would celebrate all throughout the calendar year. And so what he's saying to us is better than all of these celebrations in which we remember God's favor is the adversity that leads to mourning. Last week in Ecclesiastes 6, the very last verse, it said, who knows what is good? Who knows what is good is what Solomon wrote. Who knows what's good for us in this life? And the obvious answer is what what God does. Now, would any of us choose mourning over feasting and pleasure? No, but God does for us. Who knows what's good? We don't, but he does. In answering, I think a lot of chapter 7 is much answering the question that he brings up at the end of 6. Who knows what's good? God does. And sometimes he allows these difficult things. And so here is Solomon at the end of his life, reflecting back on everything that he's gone through. And I'm sure that he's in part recognizing that many of the marks of his life that he reflects back on as good things were through hard and difficult things. We could say that the better life involves bitter things. Or we could say it this way, walk to a wedding, but run to a funeral. Better the mourning than the feasting. That's what he's highlighting here, that a wise person 
is recognizing in the morning, in the adversity, that God is up to something instead of just running to the thing that is comfortable. What happens when we face adversity? We try to numb the pain. Why do you think bars are open at evening all the way sometimes until early in the morning? Because we get to the end of the day and we kind of reflect on the day in our life. And some people want to run to those places to numb the pain, to numb the pain. And here Solomon is saying it actually wisdom is embracing the pain and going through it. It's better than celebrating. It allows the morning to lead to joy. And we want to go around the morning and just find a life of celebration by numbing the pain. Up to this point, Grandpa Solomon has made sense for the most part. He hasn't said anything too crazy. But now and then, I'm sure you've had conversations with your grandpa that you can reflect back on, and you're like, Grandpa said some crazy stuff, stuff that didn't really make sense to me. And I think that's this next section, verses 5 and 6, where you're just like, either something crazy or something confusing that didn't make any sense to you. My grandpa, growing up, would always use this phrase. He would talk about washing the dishes and washing your clothes. And when we moved to Oregon, he said, oh, yeah, Oregon. That's, that's right by Washington, right? And I remember talking to my grandpa. I'm like, grandpa, you know it's wash wash your clothes and wash the dishes and we're, we're going to move near Washington. And my grandpa just never got it. And I've talked to other people about washing like, and this idea. And uh, I've had other people say to me, yeah, yeah, my grandpa says that too. And so I started to realize that it wasn't my grandpa. It's just like old people use the phrase Washington and washing. Okay. Anyway, this is maybe a, a bad example, but <laughs> Solomon says something that's confusing. In verses 5 and 6, he says, It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. And this is where he's highlighting rebuke over destruction. What does Solomon mean by the crackling of thorns under the pot? That is the same as the laughter of fools. Well, I think we could summarize it this way. A wise person does not laugh while their life burns to the ground. That's verse 6. That's what Solomon is saying. A wise person isn't laughing about things while they're on fire. That is the crackling of thorns under the pot is the laughter of fools. The fool pursuing life that leads to their destruction. And better is the rebuke that leads toward restoration than the laughter of fools as their life burns down. And as I thought about this verse, I thought about a meme, a meme that has been around a long time that is perfectly explains exactly what Solomon is saying in verse six. And it's this meme, you can put it up, Sarah, of the dog in the flaming room who then says, this is fine, while he drinks coffee. That is Ecclesiastes 7, 6. The crackling of thorns under the pot in the fire is the same as the laughter of fools. It reminds me of the destructive force of pride that while the house is on fire, you say, everything is fine. Everything is fine. Everything will be all right. Comes from a place of pride that says, we'll be fine. I'll take care of it. 
It's not a big deal. Think about this in a marriage where a husband and a wife can tell that they're growing apart. But they say to all their friends, everything is fine. We'll be fine. Meanwhile, they don't pursue each other. There's very little love and affection in the marriage. And one spouse begins to look at another in the workplace a little bit differently. And over time, those little seeds of everything is fine lead to the destruction of a marriage and a family. Think about the power of a secret sin, a sin that's never exposed, where this person says to everybody around them and even themselves, everything is fine. I'm just kind of dabbling in this thing. Everything is fine. But who's around to notice when somebody does something at 11 o'clock at night? Who's around to notice when you have one more drink and then one more drink? Meanwhile, you say to yourself, Everything is fine. This isn't a big deal. I'll be able to get past it. And over time, that small thing becomes a much bigger thing, and you begin to make all sorts of ways to allow that to to take root in your life and grow and grow and grow to where you can't hide it anymore. And then it comes out. And then you've hurt the people around you, and you've destroyed your own life and your own character all because everything was fine. That is the laughter of fools. Their life is burning to the ground, but everything is fine. No one's life is beyond the flames of temptation. All of us, at some point, we are sinful people, get burned. And none of us should walk around in life and think everything is fine. Thankfully, our Lord Jesus is the kind of God who draws near to us and says, I know you're on fire. I came for people who are on fire, who smell smoky from the flames of sin, and I've come to redeem you. Thank the Lord for a God like that. Throughout our church's existence, we have always sought to be a church that exemplifies it's okay to not be okay. And I love that about our church. But I think sometimes we can use that mentality of it's okay to not be okay to kind of explain away our sin. I don't really have to deal with that because it's okay for me to not be okay. So I don't have to deal with that thing. Everything's fine. It's okay for me to not be okay. Meanwhile, our life is burning to the ground. And so I say, yes, it's freely okay and acceptable and celebrated for you to admit that you're not okay. But God says, and Solomon is included in this, that it's not okay to stay that way. And you got to invite the Lord into your life to speak truth. And that's what Solomon is saying. Sometimes the rebuke of wise people around you is leading you away from the destruction of the flames that you're walking right into. Henry Cloud says it this way. Being confronted on character issues isn't pleasant. It hurts our self-image. It humbles us, but it doesn't harm us. Loving confrontation protects us from the blindness, from blindness and self-destructiveness. And then our last one, there's many others we could talk about, but our last one to focus on, wisdom over foolishness is present over past. Verse 10, he says, Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. There is a human tendency 
that we have to believe that the things of the past are better than the present, especially when things aren't going well. We kind of look with rose-colored glasses on the things of the past about being so much better. And you can all think of examples. There's probably examples in your own life where you look back on and say, yeah, it was better back then than it is now. But what he says is that that is foolish, not wisdom, because he says wisdom is like an inheritance. It's accumulated over time, and it's passed on. And so when we value the good old days over the present, we're forgetting about who we were back then. And what we want to do is take our present self and put us back in the past, but we can't do that. And we forget about all God has done to bring us up and raise us up. And so we can glamorize the past and emphasize it as being so much better than the present and kind of diminish God's work all throughout to bring us to where we are now. That's the first aspect of the past. But sometimes I think it can be also the opposite of that. The past, can we can glamorize it, but we can also be paralyzed by it. And he says in verses 13 and 14, who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. And we can look back on our crooked past and have all sorts of shame and regret about who we are and what we did. Never reflecting on the fact that who can straighten what is crooked? Well, the Lord can. The Lord can take your winding path. The Lord can take the crookedness of your life and make it not a failure. He can straighten it. And so that looping route around the mountain where you went down the mountain and then back up and then around the side, the confusing, it doesn't make any sense, why would you go that direction path of many of our lives is redeemed by the Lord. It is his path for you. And the Lord is telling the story of your life through that crooked path. And we often glamorize the past or it paralyzes us. And we allow it to be so dejecting that we can never move forward. And what he says is that wisdom is just being in the present and recognizing that God has brought you to this place and he will still carry you through. And so how does this fit within all of Ecclesiastes, these little short little bits of wisdom. We've talked about Ecclesiastes as this search for meaning, where Solomon's looking for something of substance that he can build his life on. What does little bits of wisdom have to teach us about Solomon's pursuit of life and a search for meaning? Well, I think it's simply this, that in order to grow in wisdom, you have to be willing to humble yourself. We don't know what we don't know. And inviting the Lord to instruct us and to teach us is to humble ourselves before him and asking him to instruct us and to guide us and to lead us forward. To grow in wisdom and to find a life of meaning is a humble choice. And it's very much the similar, a similar stance as how we come to faith in Christ and experience a life of salvation and a life of abundance, as Jesus calls it, in him. How do we come to faith? In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it's this invitation to open the door, to take that step of faith, to say, Jesus, I believe in you. 
and I surrender and submit my life before you. To take a step of wanting to grow in wisdom and experience a life of meaning in God is to humble ourselves before him. So if we want to grow in discerning and living the truth to the glory of God and the good of others, it takes humility. It takes a willingness to realize you haven't figured it all out. And you need the Lord's help to grow in the way that he wants you to go. So we surrender ourselves to him. We lay down our lives for him. David says this idea in this way. He says in Psalm 25, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. He guides the humble, not the proud, not the people that don't need any help. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. The Lord instructs us in this. And so Christ is our best example of humility. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, he became poor so that those of us who were poor might become rich in him. And as we surrender ourselves to him, he lifts us up. He allows us to walk in the way of wisdom. He allows us to experience a life of meaning, not on our own, but as we surrender to him. And so I think chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes fits very well within the whole book because he's grabbed at many things and all of them are fleeting. And here he is at the end of his life and he's recognizing the day of death is coming for him. And it's leading him to recognize that all of these things have been so empty. And what I needed was right before me all along. And I was unwilling in my pride to surrender myself to it. And Solomon is inviting us to be different as we sit across the table from him and enjoy our coffee conversation with him. Do life differently than me. Me, I'm the wisest fool who's ever lived. And I want you to be different. To walk in the way of humble submission to the Lord.